Good morning. I'm your host, Claudia Shambaugh, welcoming you to the October 12th, 2021 edition of Ask a Leader. Today is a fine opportunity to fly over the whole Huntington Beach oil spill debacle at 70,000 feet. Sean Anderson, Chair and Professor of the Environmental Science and Resource Management Professor and Director of the Pirate Lab at Cal State University, University Channel Islands, will speak in the first segment about how innumerable institutions have failed all living things. In the second segment, we will get an intimate portrait of the inestimable jazz vocalist Diane Reeves. All this in advance of her appearance around Southern California. We'll be right back after a quick one. Well, thank you, everybody, for staying tuned. We're uh, we're live. I, I think you can tell that. Welcome back to the show. My first guest is Sean Anderson, an ecologist who has tackled environmental questions from Alaska to the South Pole. His novel pedagogy and program development emphasizes community service, environmental impact assessments, interdisciplinary engagement, and strong emphasis on applied research to resolve existing challenges and conflicts. He helped found and mold both his environmental science and resource management program and wider university programs while simultaneously garnering a host of local, national, and international awards for his energetic and innovative teaching and research efforts. Research is uh, includes his Pirate Lab, that's the Pacific Institute for Restoration Ecology, spans diverse conservation efforts, restoring degraded ecosystems, improving coastal zone management, and conservation mechatronics. His large-scale ecological restoration projects frequently leveraging what someone's calling bleeding-edge technologies across California, Louisiana, and eastern Turkey, usually focus on wet, coastal wetland or riparian systems. All these have taken him to some areas that put him in movies and people, A-listers play Sean in those movies. Sean served on a multitude of working groups, panels, boards, and joint power authorities, including the Santa Monica Mountains Conservancy Advisory Committee, the Council on Ocean Affairs, Science and Technology. And I'm not going to list them all. You can just find them all in <laughs> Wikipedia and the faculty profile at the Channel Islands campus. He is a frequent interpreter of resource management and current coastal issues to media outlets like this one. And there will be some other uh, links that I'm going to send of, of his recent lecture this week. And that's what he'll do for us today as we consider where systems have failed all living things, all that has not been covered head on today. He completed his Bachelor's of Science in Ecology and Evolution, Environmental Studies at UC Santa Barbara, in between oil spills, I'm thinking, his Ph.D., <laughs> Population Biology, UCLA, and was a postdoctoral fellow at the Center for Conservation Biology at Stanford University. In addition, Sean was once a DJ, so this salty dog <laughs> of a coastal expert will need no language policing. He comes to us today from it. Is it your Jeep, your corner office, or your home, Sean? <laughs> it is my home. I'm from my home today. Oh, my God. Somebody let him stay home for a moment. Well, welcome <laughs> to Ask a Leader, Sean Anderson. I hope we can get all these questions. Welcome, welcome. 
Thank you, thank you. And and that 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 intro was very kind. And I don't even recognize that person. It sounds like a very important person. Oh, whoever you're talking. About. I know from interviewing a lot of you. You always say that you guys and you just like feed us like those words were. But I played around with a few. I didn't want to sound like I was plagiarizing everything on there. So it's okay. It's very comprehensive. Let's see though if we can get it down in about yeah. 35 minutes or less before we head on to the 70,000 foot level. I'd like your assessment of current conditions along the Orange County, and we have to now include the San Diego coasts. Right. Yeah, so where we are today, uh, a bit over a week past the spill, um, is we have uh, most of the, the institutions in place to do the cleanup, etc. So we have uh, things called SCAT teams that are combing the beaches, looking for tar, etc. We have well-in-place barriers over the mouths of our wetlands, etc., but um, because of the delay and sort of the warning and, and all that kind of stuff, um, we actually do have some oiling inside our um, sensitive wetland areas, Talbert Marsh, um, uh, those, those types of areas um, that got in in the early hours, uh, the initial hours of the spill. <clears throat> we also have a decent amount of oiling that's gone on across the beaches. Um, but much of that is, is relatively mild. So compared to our, our, the most recent comparison for this spill would be the 2015 Refugio spill up in Santa Barbara County. And initially we thought that was about the same volume of oil released. Now we, the, the estimates of what was released in this Huntington Beach spill is actually much broader. So, so, that, so that means in particular the lower end estimate um, has dropped lower. So um, in walking the beaches last week and in collecting samples and, and field work and such, um, it doesn't look, uh, the sites at least we visited, are not as heavily impacted as our sites were in the immediate wake of the refugio spill, which is a good thing. So it's a good thing. So it wasn't, doesn't seem to be as bad as we thought. The oiling that got into the um, wetlands is probably going to be the biggest problem, the, the largest impact. We also super lucked out. The spills happen all times of the year, all kinds of conditions, oftentimes really problematic. If, you, if we had to have a spill, we don't want to have any spills, but if we had to have a spill, this is probably one of the best times in the sense that we don't have a lot of, a lot of our, our sand nesting shorebirds and things um, are, not, are done with their nesting season, and we're just on the cusp of the seasonal migration where birds migrate down into Orange County um, from, from northern areas. And so they haven't really quite started that yet, so we kind of are in a a bit of a, a low, low spot for, for sensitive bird activity. And so that, that, that's a good thing. So that's where we are. So and then the, the other issue, of course, is that uh, yesterday the beaches, and at least Huntington Beach and some of the core areas, uh, are now open to recreation again. Uh, authorities are primarily suggesting people don't go in the water, but at least the, 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 the towel areas of the beach, the sand areas of the beach, people are being allowed to return to at least some of those beaches. And that's actually key because one of the, I think, one of the likely greatest parts of the impact on this story is not, even though our marshes are being impacted and our beaches are being impacted, et cetera, it seems likely that the socioeconomic impact of this spill is going to be much greater, which might play into what we're going to talk about next. But in particular, it's great that these beaches have only been closed for a week. It looks like we've been able to clean it up fairly well, fairly quickly. Um, but that economic impact is really um, often understudied in these um, types of events, in particular coming on the wake of the COVID catastrophe and all the businesses that were barely hanging on by their fingernails due to, to all the, the COVID issues. Um, for those to have, to have extended shutdowns of our beaches and coastal areas, 
um, is huge for many of these, uh, especially mom-and-pop businesses. Exactly. You're listening, folks, to Sean Anderson, my guest, Chair and Professor of Environmental Science and Resource Management, Professor and Director of Pirate Lab at Cal State University, Channel Islands. So the, you, I heard you say the mouths of the wetlands and the mouths and the all of that activity is that huge, huge kind of part of our community that has an elusive sort of economic value attributed to all of that. And that's one of the first institutional failures. We're going to, we're sort of moving now like up to uh, not quite 70, but 40,000 feet. And it's the the evidence of this institutional failure of uh, how wetlands are valued. It's the one NPR tackled it at like 23 trillion with a T. So talk about how you as the sort of warden of the wetland systems worldwide that you always see there's all these encroachments all these undervaluings of that talk to us about this first of institutional favors failures i don't want to call it failures. so so in general in general um our institutions our sort of economic system is based on um, extracting resources from nature and and transforming into things we need etc and we usually think about the inputs as being uh, the raw resources and the human labor to do whatever we're going to do. Um, and that, that has served us well in, in uh, the Industrial Revolution and all that good stuff. Um, but one thing we historically have not really understood are the free, essentially, the free activities that nature provides us, right? So traditionally, the, the, and not even traditionally, still, um, the, the catchphrase for dealing with pollution, for example, is um, the solution to pollution is dilution, right? So we, our smokestacks pump out uh, uh, material into the atmosphere. Our pipelines dump stuff into the ocean. And the notion is it'll just be diluted, right? This, and the this other part, reservoir, and, the plastics, Sorry, and the plastics that you talk about, you're talking about microplastics yeah. and some research too. That's getting also, that's another kind of a dilution of particles sure. around. So all this stuff, all this fossil fuel related activity is loading up somewhere else. Yeah. Yes. Exactly. And so, and so we we've sort of gone on the um, we we sort of built into our society this notion that we can just throw things away or that that nature will take care of stuff. And what we're seeing now with what I and most of my colleagues refer to as the Anthropocene, this this new geological era. Um, so historically, we define geological eras by say when an asteroid hits and and there's a radical change in the life forms or there's there's some major shift that we can see. Um, you know, millions of years later in the geological record. Um, that's what we are in right now. We're in a new geological era. And this time, the clearest signal is coming from humanity. So um, if, if humans, every single human were to just die tomorrow and instantly just go away, um, and aliens were to come down, um, you know, a million years from now onto planet Earth and, and start looking around, they could see evidence of our society. They could see it, as you were referring to, microplastics, We've, our, our lab has been monitoring microplastics for, uh, I don't know, eight years, nine years now. Um, every single, for example, we're talking about the sandy beaches here in Orange County, look beautiful. They're great. They're, they're awesome to sit on and, and, and recreate on and have a great old time on. But when we uh, take a handful of that sand, take it into our lab, filter it, full of microplastics. Not only Orange County sand, beaches, every single beach up and down the California coast, we looked at over 100 beaches on the California coast same thing. We look at our Channel Islands, offshore islands, absolutely same thing. We look at the Cook Islands, Hawaii Island, all these sites all around the world. Everywhere we've looked, we found microplastics. Indeed, now um, we have some papers published on 
uh, the air, the, the, the amount of plastics floating around that you and I are inhaling every day. So, so, so this signal of, of plastics is but one example of our Anthropocene footprint and how we're, we're filling up the planet with us, right, with, 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 our, with our imprint. And so um, in some cases, that's eh, not good. But what we're really finding is increasingly this impact is harming these ecological systems. Our Back to the wetlands, yes. And it's, causing, and it's causing problems such as the ability for plants and animals to reproduce. It's causing problems such as um, our ability to fight off storm surges and, this and, and all this kind of stuff. And so, so one of the things that this oil spill is highlighting and, and the fact that people can't go to the beach and, and things of this nature is really um, uh, uh, people... Uh, COVID initially closed down the beaches, right? We had to stay home and, and stay in. Um, this oil spill is closing the beaches. People can't go on the beach and recreate, et cetera. But um, it's really become dramatic in the last 18 months how valuable everybody has found, for example, our beaches, wetlands, our coastal systems, even people that aren't environmentalists, even people that aren't, you know, exercise uh, folks or surfers or whatever, but, but Joe Blow. And it was really dramatic. We've been monitoring how often people are going to the coast. And so we have, my colleagues and I, we have several projects looking at this, but, but um, it was just incredibly dramatic. Um, for example, L.A. County had one of the strictest uh, lockdowns of the coast in the country, and they not only closed down, um, you know, first it was, it was the parking lots, and then it was the parking lots and the, and the amenities and the bathrooms and stuff, and then it was the parking lots, bathrooms, amenities, and the sand, and then it was parking lots and everything, including the water, right? You couldn't even go out and surf and, and, or all that kind of stuff. And so um, in, instead of people just staying home, they went up to Ventura County. They went to, to other places because they were so desperate. Indeed, when, when Caltrans eventually shut down TCH, people started going up side streets and, and, and frontage roads, and, and people were pulling out chairs just sitting on, you know, six inches of a, you know, on the edge of a road, um, looking over, looking out at the ocean because people were so desperate to even if they couldn't walk on the beach or, or experience that wetland or whatever it is, they at least wanted to see it. And now that now that those restrictions have gone away, people are still doing that. So people people really uh, the the pandemic um, really drove people's um, uh, attachment to these sites and made it more visceral. And with this oil spill, I think it also just made people feel, oh my God, we finally at least we have the beaches, right? We might be might be uh, still on Zoom in some situations and this and that, but at least we have this this beach. And and so one of the services that these healthy ecosystems do is not just help us with storms and and provide us with food and all those important things. They also provide an important spiritual, psychological, mental um, a break from our hectic lives. And 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 in an oil spill like this, you can't even do that, right? It's it stinks, it smells bad, and, and you're excluded from that that uh, place where you find uh, safety and warmth and comfort. So that's that's value, and it's a very uh, it's ubiquitous the value, and it's an underestimated value, and that's for us to keep thinking about. Absolutely. And we, you haven't even gotten to like the sort of storm protection, and right. that, you know we're going to want those wetlands to buffer the sort of storm surge that can come from a, a big event, whether it's the was it the king tides, it's the yes. uh, you know some barometric pressure drop that brings in a, 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 you know a, an extensive storm. So the well, next yes yeah yeah exactly. I mean like just just last uh, not last week but just about uh, a month ago yes. about four weeks ago um, up one of our roads in uh, Malibu near Point Doom just eroded just completely eroded. So it's gone now. And so, um, and we, we have this problem throughout Orange County and elsewhere, this notion of coastal erosion. Well, the railway right? this is, in San Clemente yeah, area. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And, and, and the interesting thing with the Malibu case was 
this was a place that um, it was an unusual st- swell. It wasn't a, a typical direction where these, these high uh, tides were coming from and these big swells. And over the course of just a few hours, it took out this road. And, you know, county officials are left thinking, like, well, geez, how do we get people back and forth in here? And what do we do? we got to shut down this beach, et cetera. And so a small example of how um, we have built our infrastructure and we've built our society, not just around oil and, 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 and fossil fuel intensive, but we've built our society as if it is 1950 or, or 1900. So all our assumptions about how much water we have, about um, where it's okay to put buildings, where it's safe to put buildings, et cetera, is based on outdated thinking, unfortunately. And because of climate change and because of our transformation of the earth, um, broadly speaking, um, things are getting harder and harder. And our sandy beaches are, are a great example. So these are something when we ask people, um, we, so one of the things our lab does is we do a lot of polling and, and, and sentiment analysis and see how the general public is, is feeling about management actions. And we ask people, one word describe California, um, uh, people say sunny, sun, warm, and beaches. Beaches is one of the most, you know, all kinds of folks, wealthy folks, young folks, old folks, everybody. Beaches are one of the iconic things when it, people hear the term California that they think It's of. in every survey, it, every focus group when California comes up, whether it's going to be a candidate drafting a campaign or something, the beaches is a ubiquitous modifier description of what totally. the state is. So, Sean, we've got lots of systems that are failing, so we got to get on. We, if I may go on to the yep. next domain, please. is yeah, permitting please. oil drilling. You're talking about we're pretty antiquated. We're like only 100 years late, but or old. <laughs> permitting oil drilling in federal waters versus state waters. So, yet those pipelines, they're running through state waters. So there's a failure of a system. And the terms for permitting placement uh, that was, they, they should have been under the seafloor, but they're right above the seafloor, so they're more vulnerable. The terms for inspecting, those are behind. And the, the, and the contingencies for funding a disaster are underfunded. So let's race through all those failures in the system. Sure. Yeah. So, okay. So, so the first thing is, so we have, we have state waters and we have federal waters. State waters goes out to three nautical miles. And then from three nautical miles out to 200 nautical miles is federal waters. So the state control stuff in the state waters, the feds control stuff in the federal waters. We have 27 offshore platforms right now off the coast of California. Most of them, almost all of them are in federal waters. Um, and so the feds control those, but you're right. Um, in, in most cases, if we take the Santa Barbara example, we had the, the classic 1969 Santa Barbara oil spill that really set the tone for all of our understanding and all of our interactions of oil spill ever since. And so that, that's a longer conversation we'll skip. But, but, um, but because we'll of return that, to it another day. Santa Barbara has, because of that, Santa Barbara has the strictest uh, constraint. So the county level even in Santa Barbara has some pretty hard um, um, regulatory authority to deal with stuff. And so those folks said, hey, we want to shift to pipelines. We, okay, so we've decided that, that tankering oil is a bit dangerous, and so we want to shift to pipelines. And this wasn't just Santa Barbara. This was much of the state and, indeed, lots of the country um, now prefer pipelines because pipelines are safer, absolutely, on average. They're safer than, than tankering oil, et cetera. But we don't have as rigorous oversight of these pipelines as we like. What happens with the federal platforms is oil is in the is in a federal lease is on a federal platform, but then that oil because of the pipelines has to come to shore. As it comes to shore, there's a lease essentially. What these companies do is they lease a chunk of seabed of the seafloor um, managed by the state. What am I saying state lands? I can't think of the right term. Um, uh, state. 
state lands board commission. I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm, I must, must be early in the morning. It's anyway, a commission. Yes. And so, and so, so, so we lease that from that entity. So they essentially permit um, pipelines. They're, they're not checking the pipelines, but they're they're allowing them to go um, in place. And again. Compared to tankering, that's a good thing. That, that, that's a safer alternative. But one of the things with all these things that, that tends to happen, maybe to get to your next domain here, is, is we tend to have an agency that focuses on the pipeline or an ag- agency that focuses on the drilling or, a fo- or, or, or whatever the case may be. And one, oftentimes these, are, these have become fairly large bureaucracies, um, and, and bureaucracies are bureaucratic and, and just hard to navigate. Um, but increasingly we're understanding that we need to look at these things as a whole system an integrated the integrated coastal system indeed we have an act called the coastal zone management act from the 70s that um, it essentially says we're supposed to do this but it's it's a very hard lift and so what you have in, typically is someone that hey my domain is to look at the, the pressure of the pipe on this thing and i'll come out and check that and, and i'll look for safety there and and you know they're doing a good job of checking the pressure on the pipe and by and large, our platforms are well run compared to pipelines and operations in places like the Niger Delta and, and other places around the world where we get the majority of our oil from. So we have relatively strong systems here. But even our relatively strong systems, they don't necessarily integrate super well. And so, for example, during the press conference last week, Governor Newsom was down in Huntington Beach and he was and he was saying, hey, we got to we got to get off oil and all this and that. And then the reporter said, well, what about the. 130 odd odd uh, new drilling uh, permits your yep. um, you've issued just in the last you know since you took office and so the reality is most of those were maintenance things so most of those were perhaps a bit misleading they weren't to drill new wells per se they were to say replace an aging pipeline or some of that nature but there still were some that were for new uh, exploratory wells new new actual you know more oil being added to the account and so that's what and, and so this, this is what happens right it's like well, we have this guy in this agency, we have this lady over here, and we have that, and, and there, we, we lack this sort of integrated look at the whole. And when we seem to try to want to do those times, when we do try to look at the integrated whole, oftentimes it gets ossified and it gets you know bogged down and everything. Well, and so, so to do, we need to be doing better as a society. So who's species, likely doing this? Be Sean, I'm so sorry. We're really racing through, I understand, but okay, sorry. so is it on the nonprofits to be the ones that are looking at with integrated sorts of uh, analysis or because there's very siloed all of these agencies. So are, are the nonprofits taking up some kind of a informal slack here? Where, where is the sure. wide horse I mean, leaping I mean, in? I mean, nonprofits, agency groups, different folks are always the ones that are going to push for change. What really needs to happen, though, I, th- I think where the, the role for nonprofits and industry and all these other groups is, is to really have some plans that are different and, and, and that, that can solve the problem. We will not adopt those plans anytime soon until we have a big disaster. And so, so when we have some big shock, it could be something like, um, you know, COVID type thing. It could be a massive wildfire or whatever. At that point, that's when our leaders seem to be more amenable. And that's when the general public seems to be more supportive of some of these larger shifts in approach to things, right? So when we, we have this crisis, we can't suddenly start from ground zero and build up a new regulatory framework or a new approach or, or what have you. Um, but we can have those plans in the wings, ready to go, right? And that's the role of, again, sort of industry groups, uh, nonprofits, enviros, all of those kind of different groups um, that have some plans. And that's really where they can have their greatest um, uh, impact. So, yes, there, there is the sort of gadfly. There is the sort of 
you know, hey, let, let me point out this problem and, and, and what about this? And those, those, are, those are important roles, too. But those don't usually move the needle. What Sean, will move the needle is when we have a crisis and then we can, yes. when people are freaked out and we don't know what to do, we can give them an, alter, an effective alternative. So does the Build Back Better measure that is really in trouble in the Congress, are there provisions that incentivize this kind of integrated approach or is it much more sort of there's pots of money that, are, that various people are sort of clustering around and trying to sort of capitalize on for personal benefit? Yeah, so, so that, that particular domain as to what's going on in Congress, the machinations at the moment, I am ignorant of. The original but, plan, yeah. yes, had, had some provisions for that in there. For example, specifically the ones that, that I've heard most about are related to power generation. So there's both carrots and sticks and trying to get things more integrated and, and not just generation, but also transmission through, through different uh, uh, support structures, et cetera, for electricity, electrification of grids and stuff. Where that stands now, given that there's this talk of cutting, 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 reducing the expenditures, I'm not sure how it's going to come out. But at least conceptually, originally, in the first draft, yes, there was some of this in there. We'll do a whole show with you on Digging Out, my other show, on Monday mornings at 8, folks. I, Sean, we're talking about how, how to dig out from all this, with the, how to, where the integration can take place. But we are still working on the kind of failure systemically, the pandemic response was a, another institutional failure of all kinds at leading leading to the supply chain collapse, which has resulted in the offshore tanker parking lot, which we all are calling it now. So that's yes. that uh, to address that <laughs> yeah, in a yeah, few yeah, minutes. So, so, so totally. So, there, so these systems, you know, we are an integrated whole, right? Uh, even if people want to be isolationist or whatever, that ain't happening, right? That we we are not an uh, we are not an isolated species. We are a global species, and on these, and not only are we a global species, but our systems are integrated. So you're right. So we have this failure with regards to pandemic uh, planning and 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 response on many levels. It's not just one one particular group, but it's everything from from our failed uh, uh, testing, our, our inability to our, our unwillingness to use the WHO initial testing kits, which allow us to um, have the virus spread faster than we really understand initially. And then it, and problems happen, blah, blah, blah. So there's all those kinds of failures. But then also you're right. So so the, the pandemic induces these um, crazy economic uh, uh, problems, both in terms of production of material and in terms of distribution of that material across the planet. And obviously, one of the things we're all experiencing now is the supply chain mismatch and, and, and brokenness and, and, and screwed upness. And one of the things that caused was, um, as of two weekends ago, uh, 72 uh, cargo containers were off the coast of L.A., Long Beach, the largest container port in the nation and the ninth largest container port in the world. Sean, was that even more um, than were in the port yeah. itself that were offshore? I mean, the, the, 72's huge. Can, isn't that more? The, the, isn't the, it like it's all backwards? were just parked offshore. Right. were just outside that's what I'm saying. That's, to come in. It's backwards. There's, um, there's more offshore than there were in the actual port, likely. Yeah. yeah well, I, I'm, not, I'm not sure of that, but, but at, at times there were, yes. So, so last week we were out uh, sampling, and one point I just paused and looked up, and I was like, oh, my God. And I counted, and it looked like I was in the harbor, right? I mean, I counted, and there was 33 different ves- cargo vessels, large cargo vessels, just right, you know, in front of me. And it, that, that, was, that day was a foggy day, so I couldn't even see very far towards the horizon. So, so that some, – some aspect about that. It's unclear currently. It's unclear it, – it, it, originally we thought maybe it happened – you know, in that the day or so before the, the spill happened. Now, 
um, with more information that's come out, it seems like that stressing of the pipeline happened maybe several months ago and maybe weakened it. Um, but regardless, uh, there are never, ever <laughs> vessels parked in the area of the pipeline because they're not supposed to, right? The, 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 the charts say don't go here. We have a designated parking lot, just like we have at the mall for these ships. But the problem is, again, they were so backed up that the ships have filled up the parking lot, and they're kind of parking here, there, wherever they can. And so it seems likely that the, the proximate cause of this spill was the fact that, uh, you know, we had some uh, so somebody dragged an anchor. Another part of this, though, we have to also understand, is this we were set up for this in a sense that back in the day when these infrastructure projects went in, when these oil wells went in, it was a big behemoth legacy oil company, right? Very wealthy, you know, lots of technical capacity, and they put the platforms in, they drilled the oil, they took the oil out, they processed the oil, et cetera. Now the oil production infrastructure is completely fragmented in terms of uh, now most of the platforms, all the platforms are owned by subsidiaries and small companies, and those are not very well-resourced folks. I'm not saying anything nefarious. I'm just saying the fact is they're smaller. I'm in the case of the pipeline that ruptured here, the owners there had been in bankruptcy as much as about four years ago, right? So we have these small companies. When we had the refugio spill, one of the consequences was Venico, a Ventura County oil company, uh, went bankrupt and actually quick claims gave one of the platforms to the state of California because they said, hey, we're out. We have no money. We're gone. See you later. And they did that by making a phone call one night or one afternoon to a state agency in Sacramento. And somebody's like, hello? And they say, hey, just so you know, tomorrow you're going to own a, an oil rig. And they're like, wait, what? And they said, yeah, we're going to announce it tomorrow. It's formally at the press conference. Thanks. Bye. Click. And the next day, all of a sudden, the state of California owned a rig. And so the first thing they did was they said, hey, you know what? Um, hey, employees, guys that are out on the rig, do me a favor. Uh, keep, keep working, by the way. Keep, keep, keep the power on. Keep the lights on. Um, we're going to now start paying you, you know, to be state employees just in the interim because we don't want, you know, stuff to start falling in the ocean, et cetera. So that, that's all indicative of a system that's not robust, right? And so, so we have these, these, this infrastructure that was originally put in with really robust engineering, you know, they're, they're really incredibly engineered things. Um, but when you put steel in the ocean, you need to maintain it a lot. And so, so increasingly, the entities that are maintaining these systems are not well-resourced. They're more marginal, et cetera. And so when a ship drags the pipe for 150 feet, right, they don't maybe initially notice that, right? So, and, Sean, and we, so, we, it's all related. It's all related. It's all related. So I, I have a proposal that we're going to resume this on digging out. We want to talk about fossil fuel consumption targets that need to be wound down. So I'm going to close with the next movie that's going to have you characterized <laughs> and uh, the, the sexy role of integrating <laughs> systems. I either think of Denzel Washington or Daniel Craig that can take your place. Thank you so okay. much for your time on Ask a Leader, Sean. You're welcome. Thank you so much, Larry. My guest was Sean Anderson, Chair and Professor of the Environmental Science and Resource Management Professor and Director of the Pirate Lab at Cal State University Channel Islands. We'll be right back with the amazing jazz vocalist Diane Reeves, who will be performing around the SoCal, including right nearby at the Sacred Performing Arts Center. This is her tune right now. Keeps raining Welcome back to the show. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce in this segment the renowned jazz vocalist, Ms. Diane Reeves. In our time together, I'm really not being a shill for the performer, more like I don't want listeners to miss out 
on one of those seasoned veterans come togethers when she performs October 22nd at the Segerstrom Performing Arts Center with Chucho Valdez, the most influential figure in modern Afro-Cuban jazz and the celebrated saxophonist, Joe Lovano. Ms. Diane Reeves is a Detroit native and a resident of Denver. She was raised and launched with jazz royalty and eventually became the regal, genuine, established jazz vocalist for which she is so well known. Many folks recently viewed her appearance at the film Good Night and Good Luck that was on the national television circuit. She started singing and playing piano as a member of her high school band and Clark Terry, famous Clark Terry, discovered, noticed her she was then recording and collaborating with all the great Stanley Turnting, Lenny White, Billy Child, Harry Belafonte, Herbie Hancock, Freddie Hubbard. I can name them on and on and on. Jazz critics may liken her as the successor to various jazz singers, but I kind of think I hear Jesse Norman going into the jazz genre. So we'll oh, see. Oh, wow. What she, what she, yes, her collaborations go on, as I say. She's going to, into the future, she's going to continue demonstrating her wide range with the Mariachi, Los Camperos, and the Vienna Boys Choir. But for today, we are all about her Southern California tour. I'm, in fact, buying my own tickets. I'm not letting the, the empresario give me a comp. I want to pay top dollar so I can just camp and watch these people go for it. Ms. Diane Reeves comes to us today from Denver. Welcome to Ask a Leader, Diane Reeves. How are you doing today? I am on cloud nine because I get to have this chance with you. Thank you. How are you? I'm well. I'm well. I'm here. Autumn is set in in Colorado and it's just beautiful. Well, I guess people want to know as performers are returning to live audiences, apropos COVID, I recently, well, it was maybe several months ago, Christian McBride, with whom you've collaborated with his big band, he performed here in April of 2019 here at the Barclay. And he's talked about in the recent interviews about the dividends of not having to keep up the nonstop touring schedule. Ms. Reeves, tell us about your emerging process, please. Well, I, I have to say that 2020 really gave me a lot of time to think about a lot. And I realized that in my career has spanned over maybe over 40 years. And I've never had that much time off in the time that I've been doing this. And when I realized that, and I, you know, other things that were a part of me started to come out, you know, I started to think of myself in other kind of ways and other kind of projects that maybe I would like to do. And, you know, I still enjoy touring. I probably will be a little more mindful of the lengths and the, you know, the amount of time in a year, but I, I thoroughly enjoy being out there on the road and performing in front of audiences. But it, it is a very ambitious and a wide range as I introduced you with all these other ensembles and it's a, it's a mainstay of your career. How many, the agility with which you have this amazing chemistry and this collaboration with so many different ensembles and, and 
the best of the best, and that's you among them. So you'll be performing with Billy Child's Jazz Chamber Ensemble at the Ford before you come down here. And I had done some, a little bit of uh, crowdsourcing. There's a very, uh, our KUCI Jazz aficionado gave me a question that sort of gets to the soul of you, the jazz vocalist, that, okay. um, and his, he mentions it, you frequently uh, collaborated with Billy Childs, and while the general public may not know his work, the jazz cognoscenti know him as a premier composer and arranger. What, Ms. Reeves, did you learn from him, and what did you teach him? <laughs> oh, well, you'd have to ask him that, but the thing is, Billy and I came up together. When I lived in Los Angeles, he was one of the first people that I met in 1977-78. And we've been friends ever since. So we kind of developed together. Our formative years were together when we started performing in the world. And you know, we would listen to records and we we created a band that the concept of the band was either you you write, rearrange a piece, but improvisation was extremely important. And so through those times of you know, having this platform as young people to explore experience and be experimental together, that was really amazing. And the thing that I loved about my experience of working with him is, you know, like there was not a gig or a concept of music that we didn't feel that we could perform. So, you know, I would have this jazz experimental band with Billy and I go off and you know work with uh, Sergio Mendez or or Harry Belafonte which is a totally different kind of music at one point I worked with Tito Puente I mean there was just no limit and we just felt like you know that jazz music was the strongest foundation you could come from because it allows you to find yourself in other places adjust and make these wonderful collaborations and hybrids of ideas and and cultures. And some singers, the same Cognoscenti is giving me this thought that a really rich person here with us, some singers work a song from the outside in and or some from the inside out, working with the lyrics and the mood and the persona. You're talking about all these kinds of collaborations and all these different genres. Where are you working your music, Ms. Reeves? Well, you know, I, I'm always attracted to lyrics, but more than anything, um, like for instance, in these two situations, Billy's chamber ensemble is uh, a wonderful, you know, ensemble of, of fantastic musicians, but the writing is so incredible. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, we're doing this piece of poetry set to music and it's called Enlightened Souls. And, you know, Billy, you know, knows me and he wrote it for me to sing, but it requires that I, you know, look at it in a different way than maybe I would look at songs that, you know, I'm just picking for myself from my show. At the same time, when I go and work with Chucho, you know, the under uh, rhythm and under, you know, inspiration of all the music is the great maestro Chucho Valdez is playing. And so I want to be able to stand in that. So the gigs are so different. So I I have a, a very, very broad set of tools and whatever I need to use, that's what I use to get to what I need to do. Well, when, for those of you who just joined us, my guest is jazz vocalist extraordinaire, 
Diane Reeves in advance of her performing throughout Southern California, including at the Sagerstrom Performing Arts Center, October 22nd. That's a Friday. So folks start, um, tickets are getting, uh, are going out the door. So folks, I, this is going to be, you know, don't miss out. So just while you're still talking a little bit about the the Billy Child Jazz Chamber Ensemble, there's a new artist, Moira Smiley. I guess, will you be, will she be singing with Billy Childs or will you be collaborating with Moira Smiley as a, as a rising well, she star? Had some, she has pieces that he wrote for her to sing. I, you know, I don't know the programming of the show, but I know that Enlightened Souls is something that is just voice and a poet. And then um, I have a couple of other things um, that I'll sing from his, one from his Lauren Nero album and one from the Sarah Vaughan album that he arranged for me. So I don't know exactly how he's putting the show together, but I look forward to meeting her and we are gonna come together in this beautiful music. Well, I think I have that, uh, I have that uh, recording, the uh, Laura Nero tribute. So in your performance, not only is there the poetry and the range of all these genres and all that, there's stories that are, that you're speaking with and you're, you're persuading your audience to keep them flowing. So stories include, you've got a movement voice that I noticed in a 2019 jazz festival and included you performing Take a Knee and you laced it with Be Sure to Vote, Vote, Vote. Mm -hmm. And I wanna know if, uh, what, talk about your finding your movement voice, Miss Reeves. Well, you know, going back to what you said about stories, I grew up with amazing storytellers and I've always viewed as the stories being the fabric of our family because we could always come together and constantly weave threads of other stories into the ones that we we heard as children. And then, you know, when I got in, started singing jazz and I realized that, you know, this is part of everything. So I would hear stories from great musicians, especially from Clark Terry. And stories are so powerful because while, you know, they might be funny or sometimes tragic at the time, there's always this underlined uh, message to your spirit, to humanity, you know, uh, because afterwards, you know, this whole thing of keep moving forward, like uh, Clark would say, keep on keeping on. There was just always optimism and always something that kept you pushing forward. So the stories always gave me strength. And I found that they, because that's what how I grew up and that's what I listened to, that I would write songs in story form or I tell stories on uh, stage. And I'm always trying to be very, very current in what is going on and how we're moving and how it has affected me. And more than anything, just sharing, you know, how certain things in the world right now have affected me. And I find that people will come up and say, you know, I feel the same way or whatever. But basically, I look at music as a conversation. I look at music as a live, especially jazz musician music, as a live experience where, you know, from night to night, the story changes, the energy changes, and there's no two nights that are the same. Well, I want to say besides the sort of electric connection immediately with your audience, those stories also provide that important function of we remember better if we get it in a story. We'll remember your performances. We'll remember how electric we felt, Ms. Reeves. 
Well, you know, just like the great Maya Angelou said, you know, you, you remember how make people make you feel more than anything. And as a child coming up, I remember how the stories made me feel. And so my whole thing is just staying, you know, be in touch with yourself and, and know how you feel about a thing and, and investigate emotionally and, you know, and just really try to, you know, break through and find out what, what does this mean to me in my thoughts, in my body, in my spirit, all of those kind of things. And I try to, um, you know, that's how I enter the stage. So there's nothing that is uh, inhibited. There's nothing, you know, I don't edit, you know, I'm just there and this is the moment and try to, you know, give people that. Well, I'm looking forward to in other recordings I've seen. It's, it comes across so genuine. So if it's not scripted, then uh, we're in for a treat to hear what's the latest on your mind on October 22nd. So, Buddy well, Guy. I, I, yes, yes. I, yes, that's right. October 22nd. Yes, yes, yes. Buddy Guy puts a lot of energy into building jazz fandom and appreciation among younger audience Miseries, what kind of attention, what kind of roles are you seeing yourself in similar awareness and love for the jazz genre? Well, you know, I came up in what they call, what I call uh, living schools right on stage. And so, you know, and I had, you know, I got the chance to see a lot of the people who, you know, made this music possible. Um, they were still around when I was coming up. But, you know, like with Clark Terry, the same thing, you know, Clark would always reach back and work with young people. So, you know, to keep this going on, I do the same. I do master classes. I have you know, young people that, you know, will come and sit in with me. I have, you know, I do all kinds of things to keep the music and the story alive and flowing. So Piano Duets is the title for the October 22nd performance. And this is, as I've mentioned, it's an all-star concert featuring the preeminent you, the, uh, the Grammy award-winning you, Diane Reese. You'll be performing in the duet with Tucho Valdez, the very influential modern Afro-Cuban jazz pianist, as well as Joe Lovano, celebrated saxophone. So you'll be performing sort of one in duets with them separately, well, actually, what we start the the show is Chucho, then Chucho and uh, will come and do some th selections with Joe. Well, we kind of change it up, and then I do stuff, and then we do stuff together. And I love it because it's so free. There's no band. There's no other. You know, all the the voices are out front, and um, the music is really, really open and and open to to really, really create anything you want for the evening. So it's just the three of us and we sometimes will change and do something else. You know, you, we just never know until we get there, but that's the fun of it, that we have that ability that, and that we can. Well, when I listen to some of those live performances and I am taken by it's, and it, will, it, it may come through with this lovely collaboration with Mr. Valdez and Mr. Lovano is, that I see with your range and textures, it's kind of where church meets the club intersection. 
Oh, I never thought about it like that. Yeah, I don't know. Explain what you mean by church meets. Well, it's there's there's a sort of soulful, sacred sort of underpinning, and the club is this kind of the casual. So that the the sacred and the profane, I guess. But people is, like that, but I would have to say that same thing about Chucho because there's his music yes. is sacred in that way. It's soulful. It's it's you know it's this black Cuban experience, you know, coming you know into the piano and it. And for me, you know, it's like it for me working with him, it's like what I've, you know, tried to reach to. He's closer to the things that I've tried to reach to mm -hmm. on a spiritual level. And I feel the same thing, you know, about Joe Lovano. He's like there and, you know, we're feeling each other and intuiting each other. And it's it's quite wonderful. So in this Sagerstrom Center, I'm going to park up as close as I can with the ticket that I'm buying because I I don't know where everybody's going to be positioned. It sounds like people are going to be moving. You, you may not be in any one particular place. So I'm, I'm, I just want to park and take it all in extra close. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and I want to um, say before we close in advance of your performing, but, uh, but for, the, for the day after your October 22nd performance, mm -hmm. I want to wish you a really warm, happy birthday. Oh, thank you. And I'm excited about it because me, you know, Chucho just had his birthday this weekend. He turned 80 and this is, you know, a milestone birthday for me. I'm 65, you know, and so we are going to celebrate uh, on that night. So I'm excited about it. The tickets are available, folks, at the Sigerstrom, at scfta.org, or you can call the box office. And I've got the number. I'll put them all up on the website for my show podcasts. But you can call 714-556-2787. So, Ms. Reese, this has been such a pleasure. Thank you for all the time you've given us today on Ask a Leader. Oh, you're so welcome. And thank you for having me. Thank you. My guest was jazz vocalist extraordinaire Diane Reeves in advance of her performing throughout Southern California, including at the Sagerstrom Performing Arts Center, October 22nd. Never give you what you need. Is there well, that's my wrap. And for next week's show, it's all art studio and performance art Tyler Stallings with a fascinating exhibition at Orange Coast College and David Ayers with his own one-man performance at the South Coast Rep a shot rang out talk with you next week thank you for listening everyone and I'm a poet without a poem